Welcome to Peak Sound Radio. I'm Chris, the founder of the station. Today, we feature a conversation with Leah Day, Islander, entrepreneur, and cycling enthusiast. As you likely know, she's also the mom of four. In this conversation, we discuss her former role as a therapist, raising four kids, and managing a very active child. Leah candidly discusses the challenges she faced as a parent and the decisions that led to a cross-country bike trip with her son. We also talk about her book, her new start as an owner of a bike shop where she also guides cyclists on tours in southern Maine. One of the things that struck me most about Leah is her can-do attitude and her constant drive to do right by her family and herself. Perhaps we could all learn a little bit from this conversation about how to embrace challenges and carry it with perspective. I hope you enjoy. Uh, so I, yeah, I think I'd start just by saying, you know, I've, I've known you since we've been out here, pretty much just a casual hello and that sort of thing, and have basically always thought of you as like a island person and an island fixture, but I just learned a few moments ago that you had actually left and then come back. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about your history out on Peaks. So we lived, we moved out here, um, I think 24 years ago when my oldest was one and I was pregnant with my second. And I moved out here then because we lived in Portland, but every time we had any free time, we found ourselves coming out here to walk around and we hadn't owned a home before. So we were just so excited that the cost of living was still pretty inexpensive out here back in the day. There are cheaper houses out here than in Portland. So we moved out here the first time and then I had my second child and that was great. And then I adopted my third child. And then I just realized that there was a whole lot of time spent getting them into snowsuits to get them to the ferry and then taking off their snowsuits while they sweat to death on the ferry and then putting them back in their snowsuits when we walked to our car, which is was an outside lot. And then taking it. And I, I went through that for a winter or two and I was like, no way can I do this? Because they were all young. My kids were all a uh, year and a half, two years apart. So we decided to leave um, knowing, I think, that we could always come back, but feeling like while well, I had kids. And I think maybe we had a hunch there'd be another out there. And I was just, I, yeah, there's no way I wanted to do it here. Mm-hmm. That stage. But then when we left, we went and had these great adventures. We lived in, first we moved to Bridgeton, Maine. And then my husband went to law school in Charleston. And then he didn't want to jump right into becoming a lawyer because um, he thought he'd never see his kids. Mm. So he took a job as a camp director. And then we lived in New Hampshire for four years while he did that. And then they, we still, after all that time, so that was eight years, missed peaks. So then we all moved back here. What did you miss about it? Um, we missed the people. We missed the sense of community. We missed um, the feeling of... It's not like I'm a fearful person, but the feeling of safety of like, you knew everybody, you knew where your kid's going to be. I knew I had, you know, two teenagers at the time and I already knew that my youngest was a wild thing. And I thought, what better place to have him than on a rock in the middle of the ocean with people that would love him. I mean, that was really what it was because I, we were already sort of realizing that there was going to be a lot of work ahead of us and, and realizing that, yeah, we wanted to move while he was young to a place where people would kind of work with us. Mm-hmm. So. And I also, I just, I think it's beautiful. I mean, there's that too. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Do you, um, so at, at that stage, what were you doing for work? I've been, so I got my license as a clinical social worker when probably 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So at various forms of that, I worked in the school system a lot as a social worker. I did a lot of crisis social work. I worked with adoptive families. I did home studies for a while um, for people who are hoping to adopt. Um, I did a lot of work with um, 
uh, what would you call it? They had these, in South Carolina, they had these great groups, these parenting groups that were not for parents that were having any sort of trouble. They were just for parents that wanted to talk about parenting issues. So I led those for a while. And then I worked uh, as an alternative response worker for parents that were teetering on the edge with the state taking custody of their kids. So I worked with the parents trying to get them to become a more healthy family unit so they could keep their kids. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's like, um, there's been problems. People have noticed there's problems. And then rather than having the state come in, you would come in and, mm-hmm. and sort of counsel them. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What sort of um, time investment was that? That must have been a lot of um, sort of intense time with parents. It was really intense. Yeah. Um, that was definitely my hardest job because I was in, in people's homes doing it. So it was very, it was, it was very different than when you counsel people in an office and people come into your office, they can present to you whatever they want to present and they can tidy up their life in a way that is palatable. But when you're in their home, you're in their home and you see everything that's happening. And so it was, it had took a lot of time, but it was also very emotionally intense. Was that challenging for you? It was challenging for me. I feel like it was really worthwhile and I'm really glad I did it. And I, I would even go so far to say I was good at it because people would tell me I was good at it. Even the clients would tell me that this was good. It was a good thing. But friends would say it was taking a toll, for sure. What did that look like? <laughs> well, it's funny. I wish that Twain was here. <laughs> so I would say um, it really came down to what I would think about when I wasn't at work. So we could be at the beach learning how to surf And I would be thinking about, oh my gosh, I hope that child is okay that I saw on Friday. And and I wouldn't even necessarily be saying it, but you could even, I think people could see it on my face. It's a certain look that I think a lot of social workers end up getting actually. There's this heaviness that kind of invades their thoughts. Um, I think it was also hard that at the end of the day, you want to be able to talk to your partner about what you did. And I definitely felt like, I mean, Twain is so great and he will talk to me about anything all the time. But I felt bad because I felt like I was burdening him. Like, oh, you want to know what I did today? And it was never, sometimes I'd have a happy story, but a lot of times it was hard. Even mm-hmm. good stories are hard sometimes because, right. yeah, it was hard to get there, whatever. Mm-hmm. That's totally true. How did it, um, how did being a parent, having kids of your own um, sort of impact those feelings too? Did, was it hard not to see your own kids in the lives of um, people that you were helping or vice versa? I think, yeah, it was hard. That was hard, but it was also hard not to put myself in the position of the parents. So mm-hmm. it was hard for me to separate. Like if somebody had, had told me that my children need to be removed, for example, I can't even tell you what I would do. I really can't imagine what I would do. It wouldn't mm-hmm. be pretty. And so I, I think it was hard for me to separate and be like, it sounds so funny because of course my compassion love goes to these kids, but it was also definitely for the parents because I was a parent of young kids. And I'm not the perfect parent, you know, I've screamed for sure. And, you know, I've raged. I have never hit anybody, <laughs> but, but I'm not, I'm not the ideal parent. And so I feel like what someone else is not being an ideal parent for is, is, is the same thing, but just on a different level of the spectrum, you know? So mm-hmm. I, that made it challenging. I think, yeah. I think all social workers in this position actually should have grown children. <laughs> I do. I think it'd be, you'd have a whole different legion of people working with this sort of population if everybody was 50 and up. Just had lived a little, was grounded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I wonder if that would, do you think that would also make social workers' own experience with parenting easier or, or better in some way too? I think so. Yeah, because you could learn a lot through your own life and then you have like the wisdom, mm-hmm. you know, and you could also, yeah. yeah. So I, because this comes up so much in the book and the blog and, and sort of the way the things that happened, I do want to explore a little bit more like what was going on um, for you professionally while also at the same time, um, you know, raising three kids. What was going on professionally? Oh yeah, but I guess the interaction of professionally and personally. Yeah. So you've got three kids at home. You're. It sounds like a lot of your day, maybe twenty four hours of the day, is focused on um, making sure the kids' needs are met in one way or another. Yeah. How can you talk about how that sat with you emotionally? You know, I it's it's. I was so in it when I was in it. Um, I felt like I, 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 so I, I guess I need to back up. I was all, I've always been very, very restless and, and always had needed a lot of stimulation in my life. And I think that in a way this work and having kids sounds twisted, but in an interesting way, it, it created that stimulation. Cause I was on all the time. I was on all the time. Cause I'd be at work so focused. Cause counseling is like, you don't, yeah, I'm not hanging out around. I mean, all work is hard, but it's not like you're like, excuse me, I'm going to go have a cup of coffee for a minute. You're just mm-hmm. in it a hundred percent. When you're talking to somebody, when you're counseling, it is, it is almost like, um, it's almost like a meditation. Like you are, the, I'm not thinking about the fact that, oh, in 15 minutes I need to leave because I need to pick this person up at baseball and da, da, da. you're just in it. And then the bell rings or whatever the time. And then you're like, oh, now it's baseball time. So that all had, I think it makes you frenzied. But I don't know. I, I, yeah, I think for, I mean, this is, a, this is a, this is a whole interesting concept. Cause I also feel like it's made turning 50, I'm 53 now, but it made that whole transition much easier because I felt like there was this opening where I'd been in almost like in the box of kids for a long time. And it's not a bad, it's, it was great, but I also enjoy being out of that intensity. Yeah. 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 So uh, coming back to the intensity part, I think coming home and having three kids four four oh four at that yeah. time right of course yeah um four at that time how did that when when there were inevitably challenges or problems because like you said a nobody's the perfect parent and b um everybody's got challenges what was that like did you feel like you had anything left in the tank i think i did because i just I loved my kids so much. Like I'm lucky that way. I think that I, uh, I did. Um, yeah, no, that part was not hard. Like I, I loved, I think it's just so different because I would love to do that. Like I loved reading to my kids so much and that would be, that would fill me up too. So, I mean, I think when they were, I feel like I've almost had different families along the way. You know, when I had young kids, we were doing certain kind of we had certain kind of things that kind of, um, how can I think of these words? Like it would be, like I would do things with them that would also fill up my tank. Like we would always be taking long walks, like in the woods, we'd find parks all over Charleston or all over New Hampshire, or we would do a lot of reading or we would do a lot of, um, yeah, I think I was just very actively involved. I made it so that our life sort of worked together. So what was filling them up was filling me up. But I will say that when, when things got challenging, 
I think I did mention this in the book, actually, that at one point I did even have to call the police and say, I'm going to need some help because I can't contain what's going yeah. on. And to hear them said that they would call DHS on me was definitely like, wow, that is just, I didn't think of, I don't know, maybe that's when I started to think I need to switch what I'm doing. Because mm. then it was all just too yeah. much. Yeah. What they actually yeah. said is I couldn't find my child. He kept running away. And mm. I said, uh, I called him and I said, so everything's okay, but my child, he runs away all the time. And I just want you to know that if you see this child, I gave him the script description, know that I'm looking for him and, you know, I'm doing the best I can, but he's, he's escaped and this is my name and address. And, and they said, well, ma'am, if we find him, we'll be calling CPS, Child Protective Services. And I was just, I couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. So. Wow. Yeah. What, how, did, how did that change your response to, to things? Like, did you feel like you could call the police? Well, I was, <laughs> after that? yeah, I felt like I, I blab a lot, as you can tell with, like, and so <laughs> I felt like the more honest I was, what was going that with what was going on, the safer we were, where when you start hiding things, then it's scary. But so I, like everybody we've ever, wherever we lived, knew what we were, what was going on. Like when he would run away, the whole neighborhood would go looking at him and the schools always knew what we were, what we were dealing with. And, and I joke that like even a poison control, like I knew the person on the phone. I'd be like, okay, so now he ate, but I would always be, I think that what makes people worry about a family is when they don't know what's going on. Yeah. So. That's a good point. And I think it did help in that way that I was a social worker because I could wait. I mean, I don't know how, whether it was just imagined help or true that when I could say, well, I'm a clinical social worker and I have this child, it does change the two. And that's probably wrong you know, that the world works that way, but I think it did help. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think there is something about that that does make sense though, right? Because I think on the one hand, what you're saying when you say that is, I'm doing what I can and I've got tools in my toolbox, right? And I think one of the reasons yeah. the state sometimes gets involved is because people don't necessarily have the tools. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when did you, was there a moment when you realized you needed to start wearing more of that hat and pulling those tools out of that toolbox with your son? Yeah, like when he was one and a half. It happened really early. I He was this really unusual baby. And I, you know what else helped is that I had three other kids. So I was not, you know, didn't think parenting was just going to be really easy or whatnot. I knew something was different. And he's such a great kid, but right from the beginning... Um, so we had, we got a lot of help on board early. So we had, he had so much intensive occupational therapy when he was little and we had him in a therapeutic preschool when he was like two. Um, and he was so lovable. So all the people that helped him really loved him, which was, I don't know. Um, so I didn't, I didn't, I just actually <laughs> spent a lot. <laughs> I spent a lot of time with that toolbox wide open. Okay. I'm being all over, but I think that might've been hard for my other kids to see that crossover. Mm-hmm. Um, I would brush him. I, mean, I don't know if you've ever heard of brushing, but I would give him like this, these brushing treatments and my husband and I would swing him in this tube, like um, hammock that was a tube just to give him like pressure uh, and, the, and it just to still him and all kinds of things. And then he would, he, and he would do some scary things sometimes and the kids would have to like, 
Yeah, they were just, they were living a different, a different life than they had before all these things started to hit. Mm-hmm. And I think that was painful. I do wish Dwayne was here too, because he would tell you more. I think it was, I, okay. I think because I was a social worker, in a way I was more comfortable with all that. I was mm-hmm. much more matter of fact with like, well, this is what's going on. And this is what we have to do. And this isn't, this isn't a, the life exactly that we thought we were going to have when we had a fourth child, but it's a great life. And it's just a really, there's a lot going on. I think that there was some more maybe feelings of loss that were going on perhaps for some other people. Love, a lot of love, but a lot of like, wow, this is a lot to manage. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. When I wanted to sit down and talk to you about this, I wanted to hear your perspective as the social worker yeah. and like you know, when that switch went off and the light bulb went off for you. But really, it does make a big difference to the family members that are not social workers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how, what did that look like, I guess, when um, you were taking some of those steps like the the brushing and, and the swinging in the tube and all that? Well, I will say during those years, those early years, like the first five years of Oakley's life, I only worked, I worked two like 10 hour days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, not even, maybe two eight hour days. But I, I was very, I was with him all the time. Um, and when I say, yeah, so I forget what your question was, but I would just kind of practice social work at home <laughs> for sure. And for, for Twain, and if you want to get into how the kids reacted to that's great, but for Twain was, was there like this, I can imagine a couple of reactions, either sort of wonder about the way that you were able to work with Oakley or was it more of like a fatigue <laughs> or something else well, you know i mean I, th- I think there was a lot of fatigue but i think also he uh i think that the, I mean, this is in any relationship right even though i had been a social worker for a while at that point he would hear it better from somebody else i just had ideas but then somebody <laughs> else he'd be like oh you know and over here the occupational therapist says what he really needs is you know his pressure points and his jaw activated like oh really did she say that (laughs) (laughs) but we can laugh he could laugh about it i think um and he was game to do anything you know he put in a ton of time with oakley and we i mean yeah we would have to separate we often separated like one of us would be with three kids and one would be with oakley when we did things Mm -hmm. um because it was a one-on-one situation yeah yeah you had said that um, you had sort of characterized the early years as like birth to five. What sort of changes did you notice after after five, if any? Well, there was like, so when he was young, he really just didn't have any common sense at all. Not that kids do, but he would do things that were really, really dangerous. Um, literally, I would find him on the roof. He would climb up the side of the wall. But this is when he's like two and a half. Like it, he, he was barely, whatever. He would, he would leave and I, he would not be able to find his way back home when he left. So he would do things that would put him in, in or direct danger. When he was five, he was a nut, but he wasn't, I didn't feel like I worried about him as much as far as like just keeping him alive. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, the, oh, he, and this whole pica thing that he had, that cleared up by the time he was five, but he would eat anything, anything. It was, it was like a human vacuum. If he'd find if he's like he'd be if we were sitting here he would just pick stuff off the ground to start eating and he'd be like just stop stop and it's not he wasn't really that cognitively impaired he just had no impulse control 
So living a life with nothing that would stop you from doing anything. So by the time he was five, um, he would he still had a bit of that, but it was more reined in. And there's more, I think there was just more help because he was in, he went to a, I don't know if you know Walder school. He went to a little, yeah, yeah. a Walder school at that time. And they sort of were game to sort of let him do what he had to do, you know, without constraining him too much. And I don't know. It's just, a, Yeah. More, more systems came into place, I guess. So I can imagine um, having kids of my own that when you get your kid and when, you, when you're used to being able to take care of your kid, even if it's imperfect, wanting other people to treat your kid that way too and be able to know that your kid can be who they are. Did you feel like that was true at the Waldorf School? Well, I think it's about the teacher we had. The teacher totally got him. And that's why I said before, when people loved him, mm-hmm. it was the greatest thing in the world because then it, it makes everything easy. When you felt like there was any judgment, mm-hmm. that makes it 10 times harder. You know, yeah. it puts up all these boundaries and walls and no one gets what they need, you know. But we were really lucky with him when he was small. All the way up, actually. He's had champions. All, he's 18 now. And, he still has champions that, that get him and will advocate to the end. That's great. I know. I mean, it makes all the difference in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes all the difference to him. And did it make all the difference to you and Twain too to be able to know, like you could leave him somewhere and someone's got this, yep. whether it be at school or a camp or anything like Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Yeah, it was not a camp. But yeah, his, his, <laughs> nur- his, his nursery school teacher, mm-hmm. she volunteered to watch him through the summer even though mm-hmm. school was out because she knew we had to take a break sometimes or, I mean, not all summer, but she would take him and go berry picking. And that was like a perfect Oakley activity. Spend all day in the woods, you know, picking berries. Great. Um, he had teachers. Um, he had, uh, what do you call it? Uh, case managers at the school. They're not case managers. Are they case managers? Yeah. Or like a school social worker. Or mm, yeah. More than that. Like more one-on-one. I can't remember yeah. their name. But they, she, he had people at the Peaks Island School that were just amazing. That would just, they're not there now. I don't know who's there now that might be great as well. But that really, Miss Holden was great. Donna Holden was great. And this other woman whose name I cannot remember. But they would really advocate for him, you know. And then as he went even up through like middle school, people who would say, okay, so yes, typically we would take someone off a sports team for this, but not this kid. We're not, he just has to do this. So yeah, and even now he has some teachers at Portland High School that are just incredible. That will just you know he has, he has one teacher right now, Mr. Beam, who says you know why don't I take a, why don't I have him for all three classes so I can really keep an eye on what's going on. We're like great, you know. So there are people who are above and beyond. Without that, that'd be lonely and really hard. Truthfully, yeah. yeah. One of the things that I get the sense from both in, in talking to you and then also from from your blog and, and from the choice that you made to do this trip with Oakley, which we'll talk about in more detail in a few minutes. It seems like everybody under the sun on Instagram now, whether they have um, a diagnosis or not, is so honed in on the ways that you can like hack your body to get more dopamine or ha- hack your body to like improve your serotonin levels. Mm-hmm. and. I can spend you know ten minutes in the sun for this, or I can go for a walk in the woods for this. Mm-hmm. Were there those kind of resources around, or or was it something for you to sort of understand as a social worker that led you to to try certain things like being in the woods or being active with Oakley? Yeah, I mean, I think that we used different 
diff, I don't know if different words, but I mean, how, do you remember the book um, Last Child in the Woods? Mm. Hmm. So that was a that was a movement for a while, saying that you know just being in the woods was so healthy for the kid for kid children's brains and mm. um, less structure was better. Not like in your home, but in like spending time doing nothing outside, just mm. digging for earthworms if that's what it is. Or um, so I would say I knew like working with like the occupational therapist, they'd come at it from a very clinical direction. Like this is what the this is how to hack the body to make it you know be able to react more slowly to impulses. But I think I was more um, intuitive in the way I handled Oakley. It's funny. I think that that's a separation between social work and being a parent. I think with your child, you're more intuitive. And with, when you're working with a client, you're more like, well, these are the things we could do. But it was, it's also like if you just pay attention, it's very obvious what your child needs. I think if you're really paying attention, I shouldn't say that. But it felt very obvious to me that, you know, what he needed to do. Mm-hmm. Me. Talk more about that from your point of view. Was it the same as like knowing, oh, gee, my kid's really into cars, so we're going to find ways to like make that an experience for my kid? Or was it something different for you? Mm, it was a little bit like, um, I mean, we have had some great experiences. Like, like there's a time that stands out in my mind where we were at some pioneer festival and they were singing these pioneer songs and Oakley was running away and running away and he, he could care less about pioneer day. <laughs> and then these Native Americans came and they started drumming and it froze him in his tracks. And he was little, he was like three. And he just started squatting rhythmically to the drums as they were drumming. And it was like this, of course, he needs this deep rhythmic beat. And so we would be like, so it wasn't what was interesting to him. We would see the reaction. So, mm-hmm. and he, he drums, he drummed forever. We got him a drum kit. So it was like, oh, you like cars, let's do cars. But it was more... This is a this is a need that you like a deeper a thing, deeper yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges with him too was that he was not interested in very many things. He didn't play mm-hmm. Legos. He didn't he didn't imagine. Imagination did not ever come in. But he needed to move, and so like he needed to jump. So he had a trampoline at two and a half years old. And Twain was like, "Oh my God, he's going to kill himself." And I was like if he doesn't have a trampoline, he's going to kill himself. <laughs> and so he jumps and he has this incredible kinesthetic ability now. Like he's really quite amazing, but he just needed to jump. And again, that was the compression. So it was more intuitive. It wasn't like I was reading in a book, like this is what this guy needs. Yeah. So we had, at one point we had our living room. I made it into like a, a jungle gym. I had like a rope, uh, what do you call it? Uh, a ladder across the ceiling for him to hang on and a swing. But like you have to, I had to go with it and mm-hmm. that would work better than, yeah. Did that kind of all happen at once? And then you noticed the helped or was it more like, uh, we're going to start with this rope and then all of a sudden it's going to be that the entire room. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think I actually had a vision. I really, I mean, this is a funny interview cause I have, uh, it, he never stopped moving. So if you, if you, you were going to get him off the bed and the couch, you had to get a trampoline. And if he wasn't going to climb on the roof, you had to get him a rope with knots in it to climb up. Like he had to move. And so um, we, we lived in a farmhouse in New Hampshire during this time. And there was like an extra room. And I was just like, oh yeah. <laughs> and so it was very fun to design. We had, we literally had a ladder across the ceiling that you could hang on. And we did have a swing and we did have ropes that you could like, you know, climb up and we had ropes swung from like one post to another. She could try to balance like holding on to the other. It was a full on OT gymnasium and with all my kids actually. 
really enjoyed. Didn't help him not destroy the rest of the house, but at least you could. <laughs> yeah. And we learned, and he t- learned to snowboard when he was three. Wow. Yeah. That's what he could do. But play with little stuffed animals? No, not ever. Yeah. It was exhausting. That's so interesting. I, so uh, I'm hearing you talk about this, and I heard you at one point say that he didn't have a lot of cognitive delays. And I, I'm hoping that you can maybe comment on whether or not people just have maybe different degrees of intelligence and in various things. Because a lot of what you're saying sounds so ridiculously advanced for somebody who's three or five or six. Well, he physically he had he was advanced. I mean, it mm-hmm. was it was very noticeable to anybody who would who would meet him. Um, he he looked like a little strong barrel of of muscle. <laughs> I don't talk too much about the cognitive delay thing because if there's anything he's sensitive to, that is a sensitive topic for him. Mm-hmm. Um. But I do really, I mean, it's been overstated, but there are different kinds of intelligence. And there's some things that he is just, that he is amazing at. But math, it's not ever going to work out. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I can say that, but he, you know, um, I don't know. I guess to me, I'm feeling like that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It's certainly part of the picture. But there are ways, I don't know, there are ways around that or something, or there's... To me, it's less important in his profile because that just is. You can't really work with it that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, before we move on to the, to the impetus for the trip, since we're here in the, in the conversation, what do you think matters as far as who Oakley is? I just want him to have a happy life and, 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 and be grateful. Not grateful. I want him to en- enjoy his life and, and, cause little harm or no harm to people around him. And I want him to love himself and have joy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it doesn't matter how that happens as long as, you know, doesn't burn down the house, but it really doesn't, <laughs> you know? So I think that's what I mean about the cognitive stuff. Like you can have an IQ of 50, but if you are really happy, that's fine. That's mm-hmm. great. But if you're not happy because you feel like a caged animal and you have an IQ of 50, that's awful. So if you can find a way to make the best out of what you have, it's just going to lead to a better life. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking at a picture that I have of <laughs> your book here, although I do know that you have one um, next to you as well. But the title is Changing Gears, and then the subtitle is A Distant Teen, A Desperate Mother, <laughs> and 4,329 Miles Across. Uh, the Trans-America Bicycle Trail. Um, talk to me a little bit about the the subtitle. Yeah, I didn't write it. <laughs> oh, okay. No, I w- no, that's just marketing. I would, <laughs> I would never care. I wouldn't characterize either of us that way. Not at all. Yeah. But I think they thought other mothers that felt desperate would relate to that title. I see. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm not desperate. And the, the funny thing about that is that like, I don't feel desperate because I'm, I'm always trying to find out. Desperate is like when you don't know what else to do. And I have yeah. had desperate moments for sure. Mm-hmm. And then for him, distant, the thing about Oakley is he's not distant. Like we're so close. Mm-hmm. He's leaving for the summer for the first time like ever. And I'm a, we're both a little terrified because we're, we've been through so much together. So the distant yeah. thing. No, he was having a hard time. 
Mm -hmm. And so we had to change it. And I also wanted to bike across the country. So (laughs) 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 it worked out. I often do say for all the different kinds of personalities and disabilities out there, I got the right one because I'm happy to do what he wants to do. More often Mm -hmm. than if I had somebody who couldn't get off the couch, that would be a lot harder for me. I'm being very honest. That would be really tough for me. Then I might be a desperate mother. If you could rewrite that subtitle to what you actually think was going on, what would it be? <laughs> oh, it'd be something, some way of like finding a new groove or something, you know, or, you know, when you know it's time to mix it up or, mm. you know, getting off the beaten track and figuring out a better way. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Because we were figuring it I like out. that better. Yeah. I know. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So let's talk a little bit about figuring it out. So, that was this was 2019 so mm-hmm. thank goodness you didn't have a crystal ball i know that the pandemic was coming but <laughs> um but what um what was going on at that time that made you feel like you really did need to make a change and that oakley needed a change well i think that i was feeling like i had i had been a social worker for a long time and i kind of i wasn't challenging anymore really um and i was ready for change and so that just was in the back, in my back pocket. Um, but Oakley really, we're very different, but we're very similar. And that when I was Oakley's age, I really struggled in high school, hugely. Um, and, and didn't have anything change. And I remember kind of even wishing my parents would kind of pick up on the fact that I was struggling so much. And like, I even wanted to go to a Catholic school for a while, like just something different. You got it, something, but no one knew it. And I didn't know enough to say say it and so when i saw oakley going through a lot of what i was going through which we both shared a fondness for pathological lying (laughs) and so i told i was like oh man i I know where we're going anyway um and his grades were terrible and he and he was just not showing up where he needed to show up i think i write about this in the book that i he would say he was going to swim practice and he wouldn't be there and he was you know i first concocted this plan i think he was 15 when we were talking about it or thing when I was thinking about it. And, and one particular day, I just remember, you know, I think I'd like voiced at, at some point to Twain, oh, I'd like to do this someday. And then one day we had a bad episode in which he wasn't where he's going to be. And I was so angry that he had lied to me like yet again. But when I saw him, I just saw this like profound sadness that he didn't want to be doing this. He didn't want to be messing up so much and having his life sort of fall apart. It's so stressful. It's so awful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it was just really obvious that we really did need to do something different because I could see, I couldn't see the pandemic coming, but I could see the next four years of Oakley's life coming and thinking we, this wasn't going to work. I didn't know, I didn't know where, where it was going to lead, but if he was jumping off buildings at three, what was he going to do at 16, 17? Mm-hmm. No. So how did you come up with the idea for, for the bike ride? Was it something that because of your interests, you were like, hey, this would be a cool thing? or did the two of you talk about what you might want to do? I don't know why. I think I'm a little bit of a copycat. I think I heard somebody say they did it once and I was like, I want to do that. And um, <laughs> I think, I'll tell you what I knew it wasn't. I didn't want to go on like a long hiking trip with him because I wanted to be engaged with other people in the world. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to be alone with him for three months and he wouldn't get as much out of it. We'd be so bored. Um and I wanted to do something that was very active. So just going to live someplace else, that wouldn't do it because he has to move all the time. And, and I, I am 
you know, in my toolbox, I do know a lot about things like bilateral stimulation. And I do know that biking and swimming has a lot of bilateral stimulation. And what it does is it quiets the brain. Mm -hmm. So I did know that biking would be right up the alley of what he needed to do. Um, Yeah. And I liked the idea of going somewhere and having to make it home because I knew we'd have hard times. And I knew, you know, I thought, okay, if we get out there, we have to bike this way. Well, likely we'll just keep going because, you know, there's no alternative. And he really did not resist at all, which is really surprising. He would be like, I don't think he understood exactly what it was all going to be about, but I think he knew he needed to do something different too. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what his initial reaction was? You're like, hey, we're going to go on this big bike trip. He likes to say things like, hell no, and but that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like, he never... He never really said he didn't want to go. He'd say things like, I hate biking. <laughs> like, all right, whatever. Well, we're going. Countdown. <laughs> like, he, and then he did get behind it um, very quickly and became excited about it. You know what? Also, there's a lot of bragging rights involved. And for a kid like him, perhaps for myself, it's something that's so concrete that it, it does help to have people support you and stand behind you and say, you're doing what? Where if I had said something like, oh, yeah, we're going to go live on an island in the Caribbean for a year. I mean, that sounds nice, but. You wouldn't have this rallying of support. Right. And to bring it way back to Peaks Island, that's the, the great thing I think about living here too, is that people here, when I said I was doing this or when we voiced it, everybody was like, oh, of course you are. Yes, that's a good idea. Because they've known him since he was little. So, yeah. yeah. It sounds like some of the time he was like, hell no, then you got really behind it. What were some of like the milestones along the way where you knew like, we're going to actually do this and it's going to be awesome? Or did you have that sort of faith the whole way through that it was going to be? Well, I knew it was going to happen and I, and I cemented it by being very blabbermouthy about it. I told a lot of people because I knew the more people I told the, it would just sell myself on it. Um, and I started blogging about it right away. Like the first thing that the first day that I decided I was going, that was helpful. But then for him, I think, um, things like we worked with the gear hub to get our bikes. It's, Mm -hmm. that's tangible. And he was so excited about it. And you know, it was the smoothest bike you'd ever have. It was a beta recycled bike parts, but it was still like the components were nice. Mm-hmm. He gets really excited about that. Um, he, he could only focus on it for, you know, five minutes at a time. So he knew it was happening, but we didn't have a lot of long conversations about it. There was, I think I did write about this in the book, but right before we left, I got pretty nervous. I was pretty scared to leave my family because I have these other kids and yes, they were older, but it's just weird to leave your kids and your husband. Like I, we're never part. Um, and my dog anyway. So I got pretty nervous and he would do really well when I would voice that I was nervous. He would say, Oh, it's going to be great. You're going to be fine. So we would play these like role reversal. We just have these role reversals. And that's when I knew he had really bought in when he spent a day saying, you know, it's going to be great. Don't worry. We can, (laughs) we can FaceTime them all the time, you know? Okay. (laughs) And on the trip, he never once wanted to quit, which is still astounding to me. Yeah, that was actually going to be my exact next question was, you talk about like him wanting to or being able to focus on something for a really short amount of time. Was there any stretch of the biking where he was like, I'm, I'm done with this for now. I need to stop. I need to pause. Well, no, he'd have like hissy fits, you know, <laughs> but like it would, be, it would be something like his tire would go flat three times in an hour and he... Mm-hmm throw his bike down be like this is the stupidest thing ever I'm, this trip is oh, sucks 
but it would literally last 30 seconds. You just kind of sit there and start fixing the tire and he'd come over like, move, I'll do it better. And like, <laughs> and then he would be fine. And I think, I mean, not to be corny, but I do think the bilateral stimulation is there's something to it because those days are long. We would sometimes bicycle for eight hours and here's a kid who can't do anything for more than five minutes, but he could bicycle for eight hours and he'd talk the whole time. <laughs> sometimes I would say we, we're not talking for an hour. We would never make it, but yeah, I mean, it, that part still really blows my mind that he would do it all day for 84 days, never. And the only time we really would kind of fall apart is when we took a day off. Mm. And I think because we lost the forward momentum, you know, it's, if you're biking to get back towards home, it just keeps you going. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we started taking very infrequent days off because it really wasn't worth it. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like he was able to kind of get in his groove with those long stretches of biking. How was it for you? I, you know, I was worried that I'd be bored too, because mm -hmm. that's a lot of just thinking time. But the scenery changes so much, especially like out West. I really was never bored. Like I said, sometimes I needed him to stop talking because he, he would do things like, he'd entertain himself by telling me an entire movie, an entire, he went through every Marvel movie ever made, the entire hours hours I'd hear it. I'm like, oh my gosh. Anyway. Um, no. So when it was quiet, I would revel in the quiet. I spent, you spent a lot of time planning about, not planning, but thinking about what next and wondering, you know, where mm -hmm. are we going tonight? And is that store really going to be there that the map said was going to be there? Because you never really know. Mm -hmm. But I never got bored. It's so weird. That is, it, frankly, it sounds weird. 84 days of, of eight-hour biking. Yeah. yeah, but you just, I can't explain it. You just don't get bored. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you also just said something that made me really intrigued. So how did you plot out the trip? Were you, uh, did you plan in advance on a map? Did you like Google where you were going to stay all the time? Or did you take more of a freeform approach? So there's this, this map comp group for the, the, American Cycling Association puts out these Trans-American trail maps. And there's three different ways that go, two different routes across the country that they've created that are bike friendly. And they have maps for these routes. Um, and these maps, they're regular maps, but they show where you can camp and where there's food. And if anything changes, they have like a, something online you can look up and see is anything changed in map 33. And each map is about 20 miles. So there are oh, lots wow. of maps. Yeah. Um, so we would probably, we'd look at like, a, oh, and they show the elevation gain the whole time, like a graph of it. Um, so we would look a week ahead and then we would look two days ahead and then a day ahead, you know? So, because mm. even if something's only 20 miles apart, if there's a mountain range between you and that, that's a really long way. So you really did have to pay attention to all the different pieces all the time. Mm. It's like a puzzle, really, to use that many maps and that many different factors. And a couple of times we'd get to where there was a store and it burnt one time it burned down and one time a tornado took it away. And we were wow. like, Oh, we were counting on that. Yeah. What did you do then? Did you have like an, uh, an emergency amount of stuff that you could use in that kind of situation or were you scrambling to just find some other place? Um, sometimes we would scramble. Sometimes, um, I, Oakley always packed a lot of snacks so he would, he could get through. But you do really, you do start eating just like anything. So maybe the store would be gone, but there'd be a convenience store that sold like 
licorice. You'd be like, okay, we're having licorice and peanut butter for lunch. And you just, it sounds horrible, but you would just do what you had to do. And dinner would come, you know, we didn't get in a bind where there was nothing, you know, and you could dredge, like there's always something in the bottom of your pannier, like the old crab, the old stale crackers, like, well, yeah. Yeah. What, so what was the trail like? Was it fairly remote most of the way or were you biking in um, like urban areas part of the time? What was that? What was the it's layout? It's fairly remote. You're on back roads the whole time. So they're all roads that have very wide shoulders or very little traffic. Mm. So it's just going through like Wyoming and Idaho. It's remote. Um, you'd sometimes come into a town, but you would never go into like a city. Mm-hmm. It kept you out of all the cities. Um, yeah. So pretty much the whole way, there'd be some place to camp every 50 miles. And I think that sort of tells you how rural it was. Because if you're in an wow. urban area, there's not, that's not going to exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It also, it sounds like it did require a lot of, like you said, a lot of planning, a lot of puzzle pieces then. If it's like, oh boy, we better make sure that we're either going to stop now or make it another 50 miles. Yeah. No, really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also if we're going to, if there's a store here, but we're camping in 30 more miles, we better make sure we have food for tonight. And when, when will we get to the next door tomorrow? So you really are always, yeah. Somehow that made it fun. And we had one funny time. Twain would, would watch us on, um, he had me on location on my phone <laughs> and he would watch me a couple of times. I got lost and my phone would start ringing. He'd be like, where are you going? <laughs> yeah. That's really funny. Yeah. What was the experience like for, for Twain and for your other kids? I think that Twain, Twain says it like I was like, oh, you're getting a three month break from us. You're going to get so much done and relax. He said it was actually quite stressful because even if he was relaxing, he was always worried that the phone was going to ring. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did talk every day. If we didn't talk, I mean, there's probably two days we didn't talk and it was a big deal. Like, okay, well, we don't talk. So he would check in. He would write down every night where we were staying on his copy of the map, which was very sweet. Um, yeah, but he said it wasn't terribly relaxing. And he said he spent a lot of time, instead of getting projects done, sort of not being finding, like not being able to start anything because he was just mm-hmm. like, okay, so where are they now? Are they, you know, I'm sure he had some fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I think for my other kids, they were all away at college at that time. Mm. I think, I think... I haven't actually talked to them about this part of it, but I think it was a little strange in that I didn't speak to them very much because Oakley didn't have a phone. And when I was on the phone, it was just very blatant that I was on the phone and he wasn't, you know, and I, yeah. he really did need me to be in his world. And I would talk to them, but he'd be right there. So it'd be a different kind of mm-hmm. conversation. If I ever got into anything with him, he'd be like, oh, so you're on the phone. So there's this, um, <laughs> I think they were proud. Yeah, I think that they were proud. And I think that they had no idea that it would sort of last much longer than three months because the trip was three months. But here we are talking about it years later. I don't think. Right. But they're proud. I think that I think that now. I don't know if they'd say this. I wish I'd done something like this with all of them. Mm. For sure. Absolutely. 100%. So with, with the pride, do you think there was a little, I don't want to call it jealousy, but maybe it was jealousy or like a sense of sadness that they hadn't had that sort of close experience for like a three month chunk of time. Yeah, I don't know if they'd ever admit that. I think, I think, well, you know what? I think they all know Oakley and everything we've been through and knew 
I I think they knew why this had to happen and why it didn't need to happen for them. And it was just, like I said, it's almost like two different families in that like my two oldest sons, they're best friends growing up. And there's no way that one of them would have wanted to go without the other one. So mm-hmm. they're, they're, they were like a unit. Um, yeah. And then Raven just, she was so social. So they, I guess kids all need different things. Mm-hmm. So, but even so, yeah, I think, <laughs> I think that they did worry about me a lot because I have a reputation in my family of being a little bit off the, you know, I just kind of don't keep track of the details on my <laughs> adventures. <laughs> so, yeah. But, you know, this is how I see it. Like Jonah, my second son, edited the book and he was right in there and he was great about it. And, and to me, that showed that he was really proud of it because he wanted, that's how he wanted to be involved. Mm-hmm. And Raven, when I came home, I did some slideshow for the community center and she wanted to make the slideshow. She got right in there. And it wasn't like I even had, I wasn't asking, but they mm-hmm. were like, oh, I can do this for you. So that was their showing of pride, you know, even if there was a little, some other feelings maybe. <laughs> yeah. What do you think any parent can do to sort of, if, is there something a parent can do to nurture that kind of environment where the whole family is able to take on a, a role that feels right-sized for them around something like this? I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, in retrospect, I still sort of wish I had done something with each of them. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, because I don't know exactly how they feel about it. Everybody ha- would want something or it would it would be something else. Like I, I wouldn't have the same experience biking with like my oldest son, Finn. It wouldn't, we'd have a great time, but we didn't need that kind of, we didn't need to push through a challenge like that. We just enjoyed, like it was just easy, you know? So mm-hmm. it, this was almost a little bit like medicine for Oakley. So are you jealous that someone's taking medicine? Not really. But <laughs> yeah, we do a lot. I, I think I, I do write about this in the book. We do a lot of forced family fun adventures. So they have plenty of times that like we make them all the, but I do feel, and this is something Twain would say too, that because of Oakley being who he is, he has gotten a lot more of his, more attention than the other ones have. Mm-hmm. And that's too bad, but what do you, there's no alternative. Right. And they do say that kids who have siblings that are a little, um, have some special challenges, grow up to be the most compassionate adults. So we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That'd be a good outcome for them. It would be good, yeah. (laughs) Or they'll be in therapy for the rest of their lives. Right. Yeah. How they they neglect, I was neglecting them. I know you were wearing your mom hat, but did you notice anything over the course of the trip that like was a change for him did did he have the experience that you hoped for before you set out for it where pieces of the puzzle started to fit together better very much that's why it was such a great trip so it 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 could it couldn't have worked better you know we we there's a couple things that come to mind one i needed him and he Mm. knew i needed him so no matter how impulsive and nutty he wanted to be he needed to put up that tent because I needed to make dinner. Like it was very concrete. Like it wasn't, um, I think that was just a really important lesson for him. I think um, he was really proud of his abilities and he is self-conscious about some of his challenges. And, but he was like, 
man, I'm rocking it. You know, I can do this. I don't know other people that have done this my age, you know, and that was really great for him. I think it allowed us the space and time to have some really important conversations, things I never knew that he'd gone through or that he had questions about. Um, He is adopted and he would, you know, ask me at length all these questions that in our daily life, like he just hadn't really had a chance to, and maybe it was the age he was too, but there's nothing, it sounds so corny, but nothing like riding through the desert and having these conversations like, we can talk about this all day. We, in fact, we have. <laughs> like, <laughs> but that was that was really, really important. Um, and I think even now that, I mean, definitely even now, I mean, we still have terrible days. We still have hard times, but he, he comes back to this all, like it is, um, it's hard to put into words, but it's like an anchor. Like you can go bouncing all the world with a crazy day, but even unspoken, like, oh yeah, but we did this thing. And so there's no, not that kids question whether they're loved, but there's no question that like, I do understand him. And when I look at him and I say, even now, like, I think you're lying. He doesn't even try him. <laughs> he didn't even try it. You know, like there's just a, so that's what's funny about it saying distance. I feel like there's, well, he's not distant. Mm-hmm. He's wide open. Yeah. I think it has really helped. And, and I cannot imagine if, if we, he had not done this t- truly and gone through high school and gone into COVID. Right. I just can't imagine his outcome because it's hard enough as it is, you know, to get him through school. Yeah. What were, when COVID hit and schools were closed and everybody to stay home, what was going through your head and, and maybe through Oakley's if he talked to you about it? Yeah. I was going out of my mind because I, I had been with him so we left in August, which means I had been with him all summer because he has to be supervised or he had to be supervised 24 hours a day. That's just him mm-hmm. because of his impulsivity. So I had been with him nonstop since June through the bike trip. I had kept him home until the spring semester started and then COVID hit. So I was with him 24, that's distant. There's no distance. 24 <laughs> hours a day through COVID, through that summer mm-hmm. till the next fall. And then it was like, not even all in person. So it was just too, and that, I will tell you, there was some panic there because I gave it, I gave him my all and I was ready. Mm -hmm. As much as I love him, I was ready to sort of turn away and do something different. Not turn away, but not have him have 100% of my attention. And there was a time during COVID that we were quarantined, I think I told you, for five weeks in our house. And it was just, there was nothing else to say to each other. Like after all that time, (laughs) we worked it out. That was a lot, but I'm also really glad. Thank God we went when we did. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you could have done it during COVID because if right. I don't know that the towns would have been open to you just coming in and be like, Hey, can we sleep in your church? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When's the last time you've been tested? <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, people are doing it now this year, but yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this is so corny, but you know, I feel like he, we will remember this for the rest of our life. And there's no mm-hmm. question. There, you, anything else, like everything, it was life-changing for, mm-hmm. for both of us, you know. And when we came back and I quit social work, you know, and, and I, I didn't quit it in that I feel like it's just in me, but I just, like, I was like, oh, this is, there's other ways to be. And I think he was like, oh, there's other ways to be. Yeah, that's, uh, I guess I wasn't sure when that happened for you, if that was something that you had decided pre-trip or, or post-trip, was that something that you had sort of worked out while you were on the trail? 
Yeah. So uh, my, I've, I really love a lot of my clients a lot. And it was, it's, I have a hard time detaching and saying, oh, I'm done. Our job here is done. And um, so I, what I left, I told everybody I was working with that they had to find another therapist and I wasn't coming back. But then I, the truth is halfway across the trip, I met this man who had a hostel. Was I talking to you about that? He had a, a hostel set up in, um, in Idaho um, called the Spoken Wheel. And it's in, it, he had taken a church. It was in the middle of nowhere. It was near the painted desert. There's nowhere, nothing, so hot. And you pull in and there's this church and you go in and instead of pews, there's um, bunk beds that he had made. And it was just for passersby to come stay in. And a lot of passersby were bikers, but it was for anybody that wanted to stay. He was like the most inspiring man that I've ever met. And he, we stayed up like late at night talking about how it was, it, he, he loved the world of social work and he loved the world of therapy, but he realized that he could do more good by just kind of taking the top off that and saying, I do this, but I also am the mayor of this town now, actually. And I also actually drive the school bus. And I actually also uh, lead a, a half marathon through the painted desert for the locals. And he's like, so I'm doing social work, but I'm not sitting in an office anymore. And I was like, <laughs> so I would, I would credit, he was just a great guy. Um, yeah. So the funny thing, it's not funny, but when I came back, I did start social work again, just to get through COVID and okay. yeah. And then, but I knew then that I was leaving, that I was just mm -hmm. doing it temporarily. Yeah. When did the idea for the, for the bike shop sort of gel for you? Uh, right. I, right. When we came back, it wasn't during the ride. I, right. When I came back, I was just thinking that, um, I just wanted to focus on some happier, sounds kind of selfish, but some happier things and helping people. I don't even like the word joy, but find joy to be like, this is fun. Mm -hmm. And I can, you know, and I still, I still want the bike shop to morph. I don't want it to just be a bike shop. I want it to be sort of like a community center. Mm -hmm. It has nice couches in there and stuff now. And it's funny. It is a little bit like being a bartender or a social worker that people do hang out in bike stores. And I didn't even know this, but for hours. Because wow. you're working on a bike and they'll just sit there and talk, just chat with you. There's people in there all the time. It's great. That is great. Yeah. I think you sell, don't you sell bicycle related books and things too? Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I encourage, like I do, like we were talking about, I hate social media, but I do encourage <laughs> like, Hey, if you are, if you're on a long trip and you stop in, I'd love to hear about it. Cause I would, mm -hmm. that's part of, I mean, that's a big part of the fun. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like, I, I know that you said that, um, you think it sounds selfish, which I think I might disagree with, but, <laughs> um, wanting to change the tactic of not necessarily tactic, but change the way you're working to help people to be something a little bit more positive. Do you feel like on a day-to-day -day basis now that you are able to bring people some happiness or some other piece of their life that they might not be getting somewhere else? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think in a bunch of different ways. I, I mean, this, the tours alone, it's really, it's great. People come out on these tours who barely know how to bike. A, a lot of them actually, surprisingly. <laughs> and they have these great days. And for them, some of them, like we do this 12 mile tour, they're exhausted at the end of the 12. And that 12 mile tour is almost like a bike ride across. Like they're, they come, they flop them on the couch and they like drink water and like, oh my gosh, now I'm, I'm so tired. Now I get to, you know, enjoy the rest of my day and eat whatever I want. And it's like this big experience and they're so proud and they're so happy. So I, yeah. And then maybe they want to bike more later. So there's that going on. And then I do love helping people like 
there's a lot of people like older people who are scared to bike. So I'll be out like we sell adult trikes. So I feel like I'm doing an advertisement, <laughs> but we sell adult trikes. So I'll be out in the road, like working with an older woman to teach her how to ride the tricycle. Like, I mean, it is social work, right? Like, yeah. yeah, you can get on this bike and you can take it to the grocery store. And how fun is that? Or little kids that come in and you like outfit them with their like new bike or whatever. It's great. So yeah, that's really great. Yeah. It's really fun. Yeah, I feel like it's just like, knock on wood, but life just feels very fun right now. And like, who would have thought? And it's, it's because of the bike trip. Like it really is. Yeah. So I would say it worked. Mm -hmm. And Oakley's still in school. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Do you think, do you think there's a, a bigger place in society for helping people sort of tackle their own challenges or breakthrough challenges in that, I'm going to call it non-traditional way. Yeah. Actually, somebody came in the shop two days ago that was trying to find um, a way to have more disabled people go out on um, like outdoor wilderness adventures. Um, not people with like behavioral issues. There's a lot of youth at risk stuff, but people who would mm -hmm. just enjoy being out there for all the reasons that I enjoy being out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. It all sounds so corny, but but bikes are great because we also there's a bunch of community homes in the in the area where the bike shop is, and the people who live in these homes they come in and they come in with their bikes and they're like Walmart bikes, but they it's just so great they yeah like them the bike is their freedom because they're not going to get their driver's license they can go all over the city and they can be invested in this in this this is their transportation. This is their, it's just, it, that, that part is just great to see. And I, yeah, there's a lot of room for that. I feel like everybody should be given a bike. Yeah. Like you should reach a certain age and you just get your bike. Hmm. I think so too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We actually, so not to make this about me, cause it isn't about me, but we have um, a couple of bikes that have little battery packs on them. And yeah. we had, um, I think been hesitant to think of biking as a way of tra like transportation because Portland is a little hilly mm -hmm. if you're not, mm -hmm. like if you're going to work yeah. and you're like, don't want to show up off. at court, you know, covered in sweat. Yeah. <laughs> um, but now even just having that little boost when you need it, it makes it so much more viable. And I think for both Bridget and I, she's biked to Westbrook high school even. Yeah. Um, it feels so much better than commuting in a car yeah. and you feel a, like you've accomplished something yeah, and then be happy. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's that yeah. simple, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's so cheesy. I, biking <laughs> makes people happy. Mm -hmm. You know, it made us happy. It makes people who come to the shop happy. So, and the hope is truly that maybe Oakley works at the shop as an adult. Maybe this is what, you know, will be his, his ticket to adulthood. Yeah. We did go That's to great. bike school this year. Do you know this? Oh, no way. I don't know about oh, bike yeah. school. <laughs> we went. So two things. Once, when we finished this trip, we made a promise to each other that we would um, go on at least a two-week bike trip every year until he's 25. That's fine. We both got matching tattoos. You've seen these. Yes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and then we also both went to um, bike mechanic school in Oregon. And we spent two weeks at this high 
high caliber bike school, just learning everything, you know, about bikes. And it was a really fun experience. But so the hope is that I, I honed up a lot of my mechanical skills. I'm by no means a professional bike mechanic, but at least I can like talk the talk now <laughs> and change your chain. Um, but Oakley just is becoming more and more comfortable in the world. And so in the world of bikes. So I would love it if you end up being a mechanic there. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good. And before we wrap up, one other thing that I did want to touch on, because I did read your comments about this on your blog, um, about releasing the book and sort of being like, oh, wow, mm. this, is, this is going to happen and having a number of sort of thoughts and emotions about it. When you were when you decided to write the book and when you were writing the book, how much, not how much, was it easy to sort of put this experience into words and on a page or was it hard to sort of quantify or qualify what had happened for you in Oakley? I think that, I think it was really easy to write because when I wrote it, it was like I was just writing it to myself. I was just telling a mm. story. I think I learned through the process that what is hard to write or to say or to hear for Oakley are labels mm. as it should be. You know, he's fine with everything that the book says because it's about him. And I was fine writing it because it's just about him. But as soon as you start trying to like, it would have been harder if I felt like I was sort of being talking about things that are incredibly private to him. But if you're just talking about who he is, that's not incredibly private. Does that make sense? You know, he doesn't, he didn't want the, yeah, it came out easily and it was easy for him to read. And I think that the way that we, I think that it's really important to share these stories because I do think it's really lonely sometimes to have these issues going on as a parent or as a child, you know? Mm. And I think that it's easier to talk about if you just don't label it. Right. Yeah. The experience is the experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Saying that somebody is, you know, really rambunctious and, you know, is a wild thing actually sounds a lot nicer than saying, oh, they have severe ADHD and blah, blah, you know, like, oh, I don't mm-hmm. want that. Yeah. But that'd be a wild thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So I did right. learn about, in fact, I wish in my acknowledgments, I did not, I did say what his diagnosis were and I wish mm-hmm. I hadn't because what, why? You don't need to say that. I think I wanted to somehow lend credibility to what we were going through, but it's not necessary. That's mm-hmm. totally not the point. Yeah. No. And when, when you share, so for you and, and hearing you talk about it today, um, when you share the fact that you talked like the entire trip sometimes or that you wanted to stop talking for an hour mm-hmm. or then talking about, um, you know, some of the questions you had around his adoption. To me, those feel like really special and important moments for a parent and their child. Not necessarily private, but very important. Did you, did it come easily to you to be able to give, to to do justice to that, I guess, in your writing? Or did it land flatter than you hoped it would? No, you know, I don't, I, surprisingly, I actually did not. I don't get into a lot of detail and that's how mm-hmm. I deal with it. I, okay. I give, I don't say he said like word for, mm-hmm. I don't like, I don't think anybody who read the book knows what his adoption story is. I don't think I wrote mm-hmm. that in there because that's not, that is, that would be uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but being adopted, you know, there's many people out there that are adopted or 
Yeah. I kind of think I use broad strokes and maybe a little metaphorical language to help not make it feel too private. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I find it really helpful to write about stuff like this. I found it really, um, it's like journal writing kind of, like it makes sense of the day. So that, from the work I do, <laughs> yeah, um, is definitely like a tried and true technique for, for thinking through trauma and things like that. Do you, do you recommend that to people who go through any significant life experience that maybe people should try to do some writing around it? Yes and no. I think, I think it's good if you're going to do, mm, I think some people can write and it can be sort of like a rabbit hole that they can't get back out of um, because they do get in this, like, it's just, it, it goes into the dark and in, you need to know how you're going to get out of that dark. So in a way, I mean, I'm just thinking off the cuff. I almost feel like writing about it for a public audience is different because you always kind of take care of your public audience. So instead of going all the way down into the dark where you don't know how to get out, you're going to say, this is what happened. This was so traumatic. And this is what I'm going to do. So don't worry. Mm-hmm. You know, even in your head, if you can, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. You know, I mean, as a teenager, I remember writing my journals and they would get dark. <laughs> I don't know how helpful it was. That's true. What do you hope um, people who do pick up the book and read it will get out of it? Well, one, that they can just, if there's something that you really want to do, that you should just find a way to do it. If you really, that you shouldn't wait until, you know, maybe someday that you should just do it. I feel like, um, I hope they get out of it that, you know, every, if there's so many different, I, I feel like there's so many different little messages in it, but I hope that parents see that like it, they don't need to be embarrassed or, um, embarrassed about either their child's characteristics or their parenting characteristics is that we're, it's hard and, and we're going to mess up. I hope I said I messed up in there enough times. Cause I, I, all the time, um, and that I feel like putting it out there and being vulnerable and talking about the hard times to me is like the most helpful thing that we can do for each other. Because when we all pretend that it's all fine all the time, it's where does it doesn't get anybody anywhere, you know? Mm-hmm. So I hope that that message comes through a little bit. Um, yeah. And just that that's a great world that, that even though they're like, there's a lot of hard, horrible stuff happening right now, there's so much kindness out there that truly it's astounding. I mean, kindness all along the bike trip. So many people we met that were just unbelievably warm and welcoming and compassionate. And then afterwards, like now, people are so supportive of this book writing project and strangers I don't know, or like, you know, saying things like, oh, thank you so much. It's helped me in my son's relationship. I mean, it's just so many good people out there. So those are some of the messages. That's great. Um, it's getting dark. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so I want to make sure that we wrap up and you have time to bike yeah. <laughs> back to your place. But any, any final thoughts that you want to share? No, just thank you for doing this. I'm still, I don't all, ha- I don't have all the words to describe it yet, but I just, it's so, I'm just so happy that it, that it all worked out. It's like this, we just went for it and it, and it worked and it's still working. And we're, I feel like this book, like we're still on the adventure, Oakley mm-hmm. and I are, because we're still like proud of each other. Like, oh, we did that. That's great. Well, thanks for coming and talking about it. Yeah.
Thanks for listening to this interview with Leah Day. Her book is Changing Gears. You can find it in local bookshops all over Portland as well as online. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more talks with Islanders, please visit our archive page at peaksalandradio.com. One quick scheduling note, Monday, September 5th, marks the debut of a new music program on Peak Island Radio called Next to Silence. Join Dave Stankowitz from 7 to 8 p.m. on Mondays as he explores the catalog of ECM, the edition of contemporary music. Founded in 1969, the label features many talented artists that include Chick Corea, Keith Jarrett, Charlie Hayden, and a whole lot more. I'm grateful to Dave for volunteering his efforts to bring this style of music to Peak Island Radio, and I hope you'll all enjoy the different sounds Dave is offering. Tune in Mondays at 7 or catch the archives at peaksoundradio.com.